following sermon was recorded during the Sunday morning gathering of Grace Community Church in Las Cruces, New Mexico. We are a group of Christians that exists to joyfully extol and magnify the true and living God, to faithfully proclaim the Christ-centered word, to build each other up by speaking the truth in love, and to bring the good news of the gospel to our city and world so that the Lamb who was slain may receive the full reward for his sufferings. For more information about us, please visit gcclascruces.com. I would invite you, brothers and sisters, to take your Bibles and open up with me to the Old Testament book of Proverbs. Proverbs chapter 4. This morning, we come to our final message in a series of messages on keeping and guarding our hearts as the people of Christ. We have been considering the ins and outs and the who, what, when, where, why, and how of Proverbs chapter 4 and verse 23, where the writer says to his beloved son, keep your heart with all Vigilance or with all keeping, for from it flow the springs of life. I would encourage you to look with me in your Bibles to Proverbs chapter 4, and let's read beginning at verse 20. Proverbs chapter 4 and verse 20. My son, be attentive to my words. Incline your ear to my sayings. Let them not escape from your sight. Keep them within your heart. For they are life to those who find them and healing to all their flesh. Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. Put away from you crooked speech and put devious talk far from you. Let your eyes look directly forward and your gaze be straight before you. Ponder the path of your feet, then all your ways will be sure. Do not swerve to the right or to the left. Turn your foot away from evil. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Keep your heart with all vigilance, with all keeping, with all Digilance, for out of it, proceeding from it, are the springs, the issues of life. This proverb contains a mandate. Keep your heart. It contains the means of obeying the mandate with all vigilance, with all watchfulness. And it lays out for us the motivation for obeying the mandate. For from it, From that heart of yours flow the springs of life, the springs of life. Well, without wearying you with an extensive review of where we've been in this series of studies, I'll simply remind you that we've considered this mandate as being one of paramount importance. It's more important than you leading your family. It's more important than you sharing the gospel because you can't lead your family. You can't share the gospel and make disciples if your heart is not in a place where it needs to be. Before God, before his word, before others. We've considered what it means to keep and guard our hearts and to hold them in our care and in our custody. We saw how this word keeping referred to people being held in Custody. We are to keep our hearts in our care, under our watchful eye, in our custody. We've learned that God has appointed us as the divinely equipped watchmen over our hearts, over our inner person. And we've considered some of the seasons of life that require greater watchfulness and greater diligence on our parts in keeping our hearts. We've considered seasons of peace and prosperity and the dangers that face our hearts in those seasons. We have considered seasons of chaos and busyness and seasons of discord and division and how to guard our hearts in those seasons, seasons of doubt and seasons of darkness, seasons of uncertainty and confusion, 
seasons of rejection and loneliness. We've considered how to guard the heart in seasons of suffering and tribulation, seasons of usefulness and fruitfulness, because the heart needs to be guarded even when you are bearing fruit for God and being used by God in a great degree. Pride can easily creep in, and so you need to guard the heart. We've talked about how to guard the heart in seasons of spiritual weariness, when we're just spiritually tired and weak. Well, this morning, as we come to the final message, we want to consider how to keep and guard our hearts in the face of what is perhaps the most daunting and intimidating reality that we, as mortal human beings, face in the present world, the reality of death the death of others, and of course, our own approaching death. Not sure how much you think about death. It's a good thing to think about death. Moses prayed in Psalm 90, teach us, Lord, to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Now, let me just preface this morning's message by confessing up front that the man standing before you is no expert on death. It would be misleading and it would be insensitive to stand up here this morning and pretend and act as though I have death figured out or that somehow I am above being absolutely rocked and shaken to the core when death rears its ugly head in my life or in the lives of those around me. That's not what's happening this morning. I stand before you as a frail man susceptible to being shaken, to being broken and laid low when it comes to death coming close to my door. However, I also stand before you as one who, by the grace of God, has come to know the one who claimed that he is the resurrection and the life, the one who is the very enfleshment of mercy and compassion, the Lord Jesus Christ. Isaiah calls him the wonderful counselor. The writer of Hebrews calls him merciful and faithful. He is one who sympathizes with his people in their moments of weakness, in their moments of weariness. He is one who is ready to pour out an abundance of grace and mercy to help his people in their specific time of need. That's who he is. And so although I may be shaken and humbled and utterly laid low when death comes close, we have in our Savior and in our High Priest an overwhelming sufficiency of grace and tenderness to keep us and to hold us in times when it seems like we're going to drown in the storm of affliction. As the Prince of Peace, He is able to keep us in perfect peace, a peace that surpasses all human comprehension. And that is good news for us this morning. According to one source, there were 67.1 million deaths around the world just last year. 67.1 million deaths. Every second, an estimated 4.5 births occur around the world. And at the same time, an estimated 1.8 deaths occur every second in our world. That's 106 deaths per minute. That's 6,392 deaths per hour. That's 153,000 deaths per, per day. What's even more sobering is that one day, unless the Lord Jesus returns in our lifetime, you and I will be one of those numbers on the world's death clock. And even when we die, if the Lord tarries, that clock, that counter will continue counting. And we will have been long been forgotten in the world's death clock. And so will our loved ones. Because of the entrance of sin into the world, death is an inescapable reality for every single one of us. The Apostle Paul explained that sin came into the world through one man. And you know what was writing on the back of sin? 
death. Death and death, he said, spread to all men. Death was the penalty that God set before Adam if he would eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Death was the consequence. Genesis chapter 2, verse 15 reads like this. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. In the Hebrew, you will die, die. Well, as we know, Eve was tempted and deceived by the serpent, and she, quote, took of the tree's fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband, Adam, who was with her, and he ate. And although they didn't drop dead in that moment, they died internally and spiritually as they were separated from the God of life, alienated from the life of God, and it would only be a matter of time before their bodies would return to the dust. Like a fruitful tree, that has its roots devoured by disease, the tree doesn't immediately lose its color and wither. In the same way, when Adam and Eve sinned, their roots beneath the surface were devoured by the disease of sin. And it was only a matter of time when their bodies would wither and die and return to the dust. What's fascinating is that in Genesis chapter 5, Genesis 5, when Moses records the generations of Adam's descendants, that genealogy is the only one in the Bible that includes the phrase, and he died, after all of Adam's descendants leading up to Noah, with the exception of Enoch, who was taken by God because he walked with God. All the days that Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. All the days of Seth were 912 years, and he died. All the days of Enosh were 905, and he died. And so forth. He died, and he died, and he died, and he died, and he died. It's as though the spirit of the living God, through Moses, the writer, is underscoring the reality of death entering the world as a result of sin, so that what we have in Genesis chapter 5 isn't just the genealogy of Adam, but a graveyard that chronicles the victory and dominion of death over the human race. It's the account of death having the final word over mankind. That's what Genesis 5 is. Death has a way of putting the entire human race on the same level, doesn't it? Though humanity is made up of different classes of people, Kings and servants, billionaires and beggars, nobles and nobodies. In the end, death delivers them into the same hole. In the 1600s, the Puritan Thomas Adams said that death takes away the difference between king and beggar and tumbles both the knight and the pawn into one bag. That's the reality that we are considering this morning. Bildad, the friend of Job, called death the king of terrors, Job 18.14. Paul the Apostle referred to death as the last enemy to be destroyed. And the prophet Isaiah described death as the covering that is cast over all peoples, that veil that is spread over all the nations of the earth, Isaiah 25.7. It covers all of us. In each of these instances, God is telling us that death is sobering, it's ruthless, it's universal, and it's inevitable. But that isn't the whole truth. Praise be to God that with the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, death, as Paul says, has been abolished, and life and immortality have been brought to the light through the gospel. We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And because of that, we can be certain that death 
will be unable to separate the people of God from the love of God. Jesus came in flesh and blood to die for us so that through death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. What you see in the world today are people who have been set free from the fear of death and then another people who are still held in bondage to the fear of death. We are a people that is terrified of death, a people that fear death, and we've been rescued out of that. But if you look around us in this lost world, everyone is scared of death, whether they accept it or not, whether they acknowledge it or not. They're trying to avoid it all the time. They don't like to talk about it. And so they invent euphemisms and they don't call death, death anymore. It's, he passed away. He moved on to a better place. As if they know that. Death is an enemy. It's an intruder. And Christ came to deliver his people from the fear of death. And now he, as the resurrection and the life, the firstborn from the dead, holds in his nail-scarred hands the keys of death and Hades. He has overcome. Well, our concern this morning, as I mentioned earlier, is how to keep and guard our hearts in the face of death around us and, of course, in the face of our own approaching death. How do we keep our hearts in light of death around us and in light of our own approaching death? And so let's consider, first of all, how to guard our hearts in the face of death around us. Death around us. We hear it all the time, especially in a day and age when news travels as fast as it does. An earthquake here, a mass shooting there, from terrorist attacks to heart attacks, whether it's a tornado, a hurricane, a tsunami, a global pandemic, Death is everywhere. And I want to take a moment to consider what our hearts are prone to do when we hear about death and destruction from a distance. Death and destruction out there. There's something that our hearts do. Our hearts do a number of things, but number one, they can easily release a sigh of relief that it didn't happen here. And because of that, our hearts can begin to believe that it can never happen here because it didn't happen here it can never happen here and so in the end our hearts stand in danger of becoming numb to the reality and the possibility of death that's the danger becoming numb to the reality and possibility of death and this can easily lead to a false sense of security that takes life for granted uh, false sense of security that eventually leads to boasting about what we're going to do tomorrow and the day after that and the day after that and the year after that. The very thing James warns us about in chapter four of his letter. Listen to James chapter four, verse 13. Come now. It's an invitation. You who say today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? You are a mist, a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes. You are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills. We will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. James is confronting those who take life for granted and fail to consider the reality and possibility of dying. So when we hear about death from a distance, rather than allowing our hearts to be puffed up with a false sense of security, we ought to do a number of things. Number one, we ought to take the time to realize that although the nightly news presents death in the form of numbers, biblically, they are not numbers, friends. They are souls. 
They are souls. The souls of men and women and boys and girls. They are souls. They are men and women created in the very image and likeness of God. And each of them will spend eternity either rejoicing in the glory and grace of the triune God or they will spend eternity suffering in conscious torment in a place of unquenchable fire. That's the reality. I didn't make that up. In fact, I would never want to make something like that up. Jesus taught us that. When you read the obituaries and you see faces that you've never seen, realize that they are either enjoying eternal pleasures in the presence of God or they are weeping and gnashing their teeth in fury against the God of glory. We read in Proverbs chapter 19, verse 3, that when a man's folly brings his way to ruin, his heart rages against the Lord. Secondly, when we hear about death from afar, death from a distance, death out there, depending on the type of tragedy and the location of the tragedy, our hearts can think and believe that maybe these people deserved it because they were worse sinners than others. Some people think that. There was a time when Jesus confronted this kind of thinking in his hearers in his day. We read this in Luke chapter 13, if you want to turn there with me. Luke 13. Beginning in verse 1, there were some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. We don't know the exact episode in history that these people are referring to, but whatever it was, it's pretty consistent with Pontius Pilate's character as reported by historical sources outside of the Bible. The Jewish historian Josephus records how on one occasion, Pilate used the temple tax to fund a project to bring water to Jerusalem through an aqueduct. Well, when the Jews objected, when they found out they objected Pilate stationed men with daggers and weapons in the crowd, and many Jews were killed at his command. Sometime after the crucifixion, history tells us that Pilate was removed from office because of the abuses of power that had apparently angered even the higher-ups within the Roman government. This was not a, not a good dude. But from what we can gather and put together, apparently some Galilean pilgrims were killed by Pilate, slaughtered by Pilate, either directly or through his soldiers, while they were in Jerusalem offering sacrifices at the altar. Pilate had apparently ordered their blood to be sprinkled over the altar along with the blood of their animal sacrifices. It was a heinous act on the part of Pilate. Indeed, it was sacrilege. This man profaned and desecrated what the Jews regarded as holy. So it's understandable why some in the crowd are bringing this to the attention of Jesus. They want his take on it. Well, Jesus responds, verse 2, by asking, Do you think that these Galileans were worse offenders than all the other Galileans? Because they suffered in this way? Many people then and many people now draw a direct correlation between sin and suffering. Today, people use the word karma. How often do you hear that? Karma's this, right? Karma will get you. When they see something bad that happens, they, they dismiss it as karma. Whatever that person did before, it's coming back to haunt him. They draw a, correct, a direct correlation between sin and suffering, believing that if something bad happens to someone, it's the result of something evil that they did. People sometimes think that the more a person sins, the more they will suffer in this life. Well, Jesus here in Luke 13 puts that misconception to rest. In fact, the book of Job teaches us that in this life, there isn't a direct correlation between someone's sin and their suffering. Now, in the big picture, there is a connection between sin and suffering. 
If it weren't for the presence of sin, there would be no death, there would be no pain, there would be no suffering in the world. But the fact that a person suffers isn't necessarily an indication that the suffering is a result of his or her sin. Well, after asking if they thought these Galileans suffered in this way because they were worse sinners than others, Jesus demolishes this kind of thinking when he says, look at verse 3, No, I tell you. No, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. That's not what I would have done, but again, everything about him is so different, 180 degree different from what we are and what we would do. He is perfect. He is all glorious. He is truth. And he concludes by bringing up another instance of what some then and some now might consider to be karma. He says in verse 4, Or those 18 on whom the tower of Siloam fell and killed them. Do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, unless there's a change of heart in you, and you turn from sin and treasuring unrighteousness to pleading to God for a new life, for forgiveness, to walk in his ways. Unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. We might have expected him to offer an explanation as to how and why this happened. As the all-knowing God, he could have went into explanation on the structure of this tower and why, what really happened, what, what, what they used to build this tower and how it was inadequate to be sustained over a long period of time. But instead... Jesus leaves us absolutely shocked by his response. He uses this as a teaching moment to show them that they're asking the wrong questions in their hearts. The question isn't, why did the tower collapse on those people over there? What did they do to deserve that? The question they should have been asking is, why did that tower not fall on my head? And why have the stars not fallen from heaven to earth to destroy us? Why has that not happened yet? That's essentially what he's saying. He uses this opportunity to highlight the urgency and the necessity of repentance. Jonathan Edwards once turned to his congregation in the 1700s and asked them to give him one good reason why God hadn't destroyed them since they woke up that morning. And he went on and asked them to consider that every second we live, every luxury that makes us happy and every blessing that we experience is the result of God's mercy and grace. How would you like to walk into Sunday morning with that question? Give me one good reason why God hasn't destroyed you today, church. As Thomas Watson said, every time we draw our breath, we suck in mercy. That's the biblical perspective. God commands us to be holy and God commands us to be perfect as he is holy and perfect. And he warns the soul that sins that it shall die. And yet we, in our arrogance, continue to sin boldly. And then when tragedy strikes and God allows suffering, we gasp in astonishment and question his goodness. Our blindness and our arrogance. If we were to guard our hearts when we hear about death from a distance, we ought to, number one, take the time to consider and be sobered by the reality that more unprepared, unrepentant, ungodly souls just entered a graceless, hopeless eternity. Again, the news will have you believe they're just insignificant numbers somewhere off in Timbuktu. But friends, we ought to take the time to pause, consider that people just entered a Christless eternity. Secondly, instead of trying to draw connections between cause and effect, between tragedy and transgression, between a person's sin and their suffering and asking what they must have done to deserve such a death, we ought to bow our heads and we ought to bow our hearts in genuine repentance and humble gratitude 
repentance for taking God's mercy for granted, and gratitude for receiving God's mercy without deserving it. Well, we thought about death from a distance, but what about death when it draws near and either threatens our loved ones or ends up taking our loved ones? Because we're to guard our hearts at all times, even in those seasons. How do we keep our hearts in moments like these? And what do we need to guard our hearts from in times like these? We all have loved ones in our lives. Those that we really care about. What do we do when they get sick? What do we do when it appears that death is coming for them? That it's a real possibility? That perhaps it's just around the corner? That death is coming to them in the form of cancer? Or perhaps as the result of an accident, an unexpected accident? Those of us who are parents, what do we do to guard our hearts from In the middle of the night, those moments when you're holding your child who's burning up with a fever and crying inconsolably, you've been there. You think it's the end. What do you do? Well, for one, we are to guard our hearts from running away from God in despair. We are to keep and guard our hearts from running away from God in those moments in despair. How easy it is for us in moments of feeling utterly helpless and hopeless in times when we wish that we could just take away the affliction or the infirmity of our loved one and bear it ourselves, especially as parents. How easy it is in moments like that to have our thoughts run far from God. You know, in the world we have what are known as three-second cars, Cars that are able to go from zero to 60 miles per hour in just three seconds. Well, our hearts, like three-second cars, can go from zero to 60 in the opposite direction, away from God, whenever they are hit by the reality that we are not in control. The second we realize we're not in control, we run from God. And I believe one of the reasons God in his kind providence ordains difficult seasons like these is to expose and expel the idol of control. The idol of control. All of us love control. We want to be in control. We panic when we are not in control. We do all kinds of crazy things when we're faced with the reality that we have no power over certain situations. It drives us mad. And in those times of madness, it's easy to go from zero to 60 in the opposite direction, away from our God. How many examples, friends, do we have in the Bible of utterly helpless and downright desperate people coming to the Lord Jesus Christ on behalf of their loved ones, approaching him in light of their loved ones' suffering? In Mark chapter 1, Peter's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever, and we read that immediately, immediately, they told Jesus about her, teaching us that prayer should be our immediate response when our loved ones are sick. Prayer should be immediate. In John chapter 5, the official whose son was sick came to Jesus and asked him to come and heal his son, who was at the point of death. The man rested in the word of Christ, and Christ healed the boy from a distance, teaching us that distance is no barrier to his power or his glory. In Luke chapter 7, we have the account of a Roman centurion who had a servant who was sick and at the point of death. And we are told that this servant was highly valued, highly prized and precious to the centurion. Well, the centurion had sent Elders of the Jews. This is a Gentile, powerful Gentile, rounding up Jews to go and ask Jesus to come and heal the servant because this man did not feel worthy to even have Jesus come under his roof. The man believed Jesus had the power to just say a word and the servant would be healed. In Luke 8, a ruler of the synagogue named Jairus you remember, 
threw himself before the feet of our Lord, begging him to come to his house because his one and only daughter, who was about 12 years of age, was dying. And I love how in the providence of Almighty God, that instance occurs when at the very same time, this whole commotion would be interrupted by a woman who had been suffering a discharge of blood for how many years? 12 years. She was suffering for as long as this child had been alive. It's a fascinating story in Luke 8. I encourage you to read it. But in all of these instances, Jesus was sought out. He was appealed to. He was believed upon. And everything turned out okay. Jesus either healed the loved one or he resurrected the loved one. But what about the fact that God doesn't guarantee that every prayer will result in healing? or bringing our loved ones back from the dead? What about when we go to Christ and we plead and we plead and we pray and we pray and we fast and we get serious and we're repenting and we're examining ourselves and we're pleading and praying and the outcome and the result is still loss and still death? What do we do? In John chapter 11, Lazarus is sick and his sisters, Martha and Mary, They send to Jesus because he's off and away, saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. They knew where to go. When Jesus heard this, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Well, time forbids me, obviously, from going through the entire account, but long story short, Lazarus dies. By the time Jesus gets there, he's already been in the grave four days. Martha meets Jesus and says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And then eventually later, Mary meets him, falls at his feet and says the same thing. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. How many times have we said something similar to the Lord in our despair and our pain? Well, then we're given an important detail that is often overlooked in this story. As they are on their way to the tomb where Lazarus has already been dead for four days, we read the shortest verse in the Bible. And yet probably the most profound verse in the Bible as it relates to the compassionate heart of the Lord Jesus Christ. When Jesus saw Mary weeping, as they're on their way to the tomb, we read John eleven thirty five. 35, Jesus wept. Jesus wept. Jesus wept. Has it ever hit you? What I find absolutely fascinating about this God-breathed account in the Gospel of John is that what is that we have many accounts of people weeping in the Bible. Peter wept bitterly when he realized that he did what he did in denying Christ. The rooster crowed and it says that he went out and wept bitterly. Mary Magdalene, she wept as she looked into the empty tomb. This woman who wept at the feet of Christ as she broke this ointment over him and dried it with her hair. She wept. The widow of Nain wept over her dead son. Paul, in Philippians chapter 3, verse 18, as he penned those very words, he says, I write them with tears. Same word. The believers in Acts 21, they wept as they urged Paul not to go to Jerusalem where they believed he'd be delivered into the hands of the Romans. They wept, weeping, weeping, weeping all over the Bible. In all those instances, the same Greek word is used to describe their weeping. But here, in John eleven thirty five. 35, where John tells us that Jesus wept. John uses a Greek word found absolutely nowhere else in the New Testament. Theologians call such words a hapax legomenon, a term of which only one instance of use is recorded in a body of literature. That's the only place this word is used in all the Bible, in all this language of weeping. Now, some might consider that to be nothing. Some might dismiss that as nothing. But I would suggest to you that the Spirit of God through John is underscoring the heart 
ravishing reality that there is no weeping like the weeping of our Lord Jesus Christ. And there are absolutely no tears like the tears of the Son of God. His weeping and his tears reveal the very heart and compassion of God the Father, a heart that is 100% for his children in their suffering, in their pain, and in their brokenness. When Jesus said that Lazarus' death was for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it, he wasn't just He wasn't just saying that I'm going to be glorified by my life-giving resurrection power, restoring Lazarus to life. He would be glorified in his heart of perfect pity being displayed for everyone to see. He would be glorified as his heart of perfect compassion is glorified as he is seen weeping with those he loves and cares for. There is no weeping like his in a Bible full of weeping. And if you think that just because Jesus now is resurrected and glorified and seated at the right hand of the majesty on high, that weeping and compassion and pity are all realities confined to his first coming, you are absolutely wrong. As Dane Ortland points out in his book, Gentle and Lowly, the Heart of Christ for Sinners and Sufferers, Here we remember that the testimony of the New Testament is that Jesus is the same yesterday and today and forever. The same Christ who wept at the tomb of Lazarus weeps with us. Christ's heart is not far off despite his presence now in heaven, for he does all this by his own spirit. Jesus Christ is closer to you today, believer, than he was to the sinners and sufferers he spoke with and touched in his earthly ministry. He continues, Through his spirit, Christ's own heart envelops his people with an embrace nearer and tighter than any physical embrace could ever achieve. His actions on earth, in a body, reflected his heart. The same heart now acts in the same ways toward us, for we are now his body. I get the feminization of men in our world and especially in the church today, and it ought to grieve us. But if we, in our thinking of Christ, have no rooms for a, no room, no place for a Christ who is full of compassion and weeps with his people is there with his people present in their pain and in their brokenness. We have a false view of him. Well, you might say after all that, well, Mary and Martha went to Jesus, like you're saying, and although Lazarus died, Jesus raised them from the dead. What about when I go to him and my loved ones are still lying in the grave? Well, the Bible addresses this as well in the account of Job. Job had seven sons and three daughters. And one day Job received the report that as his sons and daughters were enjoying each other's company, food and wine in his oldest son's house, a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house and it fell upon his children and all of them died. And what was Job's response? It was definitely a zero to 60 response, but the kind that you want. It was a zero to 60 response toward his God. We read this in Job chapter one, verse 20. Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head, and he fell to the ground and worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return there. Yahweh gave, and Yahweh has taken away. Blessed be the name of Yahweh. And I don't think that he said that as any kind of stoic. He probably said that through gritting teeth, pain, tears, red eyes, a tired and sore body from crying and processing the 
recounting the whole thing over and over in his head. He says, Yahweh has given and Yahweh has taken away. Blessed be, praise be the name of Yahweh. Easier said than done, right? But I believe that God gives an abundance of grace in moments like these. That he gives a peace that surpasses all understanding in moments like these. It's easy for us to look ahead and think of possible situations and say, oh, I don't think I could ever respond that way. Not realizing that in that day, if you are still in Christ, if you are in Christ today, that he will give you an abundance of grace to face whatever trial you need to face as your God. Even when it comes to loved ones who die without Christ, our hearts can rest assured knowing that God is a just judge and he will do what's right. He will do what's right. He will not violate justice or abundant righteousness. He will not violate his justice. He will do what's right and we can rest in that. You might say, well, what about the loss of our preborn children? What about the loss of our newborn children? Well, we can rest in the character of God who is just and merciful and full of perfect compassion. We can rest in that. And so when death comes near and either threatens or takes our loved ones, we are to guard our hearts from thinking that God is against us. We're to keep them from running away from God. How? By remembering that we have in our Savior, Jesus Christ, a wonder of a counselor. One who, although we can't see him, weeps with us in our suffering and in our brokenness. One who will one day wipe away every tear from our eyes. That's who he is. Well, finally, with the remainder of our time together, I want to ask the question, how do we guard our hearts in the face of our own approaching death. We've talked about death from a distance, death up close. What about as we face and consider our own approaching death? How do we guard our hearts? What do we guard our hearts from as we think about our dying day? By praying to God to help etch the following 10 truths on our hearts. Number one, death has lost its sting. As you look death in the face, as you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, realize that death to you as a believer is harmless. Death has lost its sting. Imagine being in the darkness, a dark valley with no weapons, no protection, and you see the fiercest-looking lion heading your way, and his eyes are locked straight with you. And as that lion begins to run and run and sprint, comes to a sprint, he opens his mouth, and you realize he's got just gums in his mouth. There's no teeth, and you look closely, there's no claws. He's a big old furry animal. What can he do? Death has lost its sting. Death is harmless to the believer. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, listen to these words. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. And when the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, this is, by the way, at the coming resurrection. Then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. And there's a taunt here. Paul jumps into a taunt. He looks death in the face and he says, oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the first thing we need to etch on our hearts is that death has lost its sting. Secondly, death will not separate us from the love of God. There is a separation that takes place at death. The separation between the body and the spirit, the body, the soul, the body and the inner person. There's a separation. 
the body goes into the ground, is either buried or burned or cremated or whatever, the body is separated from the inner person. However, for the believer, that inner person will not be separated from God, will not be separated from the love of God. The gospel assures us of that. Paul the Apostle said in Romans chapter 8, verse 38, for I am certain, I am sure, I am positive that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. We will be separated from our family at death. We will be separated from our body at death, but we will not in Christ be separated from our God at death. In fact, we will be united to him. Number three, if we are to look our death in the face, as we all must do, we are to remember that death is not loss. It is all gain. Death is not loss. It is gain. Paul in Philippians chapter 1, verse 21 says to the Philippians, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. We often think of death as loss. We're losing, we're losing, we're losing. Stuff's being taken away. All my stuff, it's going to go to someone else. All my junk, it's going to go to someone else. But Paul says, death is gain. Acquiring eternal pleasures at the right hand of God, eternal inheritance that we've received by our union with Christ. That inheritance that the Spirit sealed us for, we finally lay hold of it. That inheritance that the Son purchased for us, we finally lay hold of it. Death is gain, it's not loss for the believer. Number four, How do we guard our hearts in the face of our approaching death? We're to remember that just as we are called to live well for Christ, we are called to die well for Christ. You see, we're not just called to live for Christ, we're called to die for Christ. Paul said something similar just before that in Philippians 1.20. He says, it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage now, As always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. You see, Paul understood the importance of not just honoring Christ in his life, but honoring Christ by his death. I'm reminded of a specific time of unusual revival and awakening. And one pastor reported in one of his letters as people are believing the gospel and there's conversions left and right and people are turning, sinners are turning to God in this great awakening. One of the ways he described this great awakening is our people are dying well. Our people are dying well. With hope, rejoicing in hope of the glory of God, looking death in the face and saying, the Lord is my shepherd and his goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. I will not reside in the valley of death forever. John Flavel said, we ought to die as well as live like saints. Number five, we are to remember in our heart that death is a doorway that leads us into the very presence of Christ. Death is a doorway that leads us into the presence of our Savior. Paul said to the Corinthians in his second letter, we are always of good courage. There's a remedy for discouragement. There's a remedy for depression. There's a remedy for despondency. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. Paul understood that to be away from this body, separated from the body, is to be at home. 
I love that he doesn't just say, while we are away from the body, we are in the kingdom. He says, no, what's more intimate than a kingdom is we are home. The Christian, upon death, that's the Christian's homecoming. That's the, God, that's, that, that's, that's the welcoming home. It's not a departure. It's a coming home. And if we are to face death well, we are to recall and hold it dear that all that's happening is that we are going home to our Father. We are going to the Father's house. In his Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, Jesus would not have told us. But he went to prepare a place for us. And he will bring us to that place. Leads us into the presence of Christ. Paul says, I'm hard-pressed between the two. If I stay here, I know it means fruitful labor in the Lord. But my desire is to depart and to be with Christ. For that is far better. Far better than winning millions to Christ is being with Christ. Far better than leading your family to Christ is being with him. Paul understood that. Number six, we are to remember that the death of our bodies means the death of our sin. The death of our bodies means the death and end of our sin. The very thing we are praying about every day, the very thing that evokes tears from us, the very thing that causes us to groan inwardly with a broken creation is sin, indwelling sin, the flesh, straying thoughts. Even this morning, some of you are battling sin in your mind as you're thinking about other things, lesser things, trivial things. Even that won't be present when you're home with your father. You will never be tempted to turn away from him. You will never be tempted to look to something else. Sin will end when your death comes. Thomas Brooks, again, I just can't help quoting the Puritans. <laughs> death, he says, is not the death of the man, but the death of his sin. When a believer dies, his sin dies with him. As death came into the world by sin, so sin goes out by death. Death kills sin, which bred it. Number seven, we are to remember that death for the believer is a blessing, not a curse. It was a curse prior to Christ Jesus coming and abolishing death and bringing life and immortality to light through the gospel. It was a curse, but now in light of his triumphant resurrection, his glorious ascension, his session to the right hand of the Father, where he has all power and all authority, death is now a blessing to us as the people of God. Revelation 14, 13, listen to this. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, write this, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the spirit, that they may rest from their labors for their deeds follow them. Death is a blessing, not a curse. It's going into a place where there is no more toil and no more danger. It's a place of everlasting Sabbath rest for the people of God. Number eight, as we prepare for our own death, we are to remember and etch it into our hearts that death is necessary for our final resurrection. Death is necessary. And for this, I want to point you to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians 15 is the death chapter and it's the resurrection chapter. It's the gloomy chapter, but it's the glorious chapter. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, beginning in verse 35, Paul says this, but someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person. Obviously, he's not referring to a genuine, authentic question. He's dealing with opposers there in the church of Corinth. Hecklers, if you will. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. Verse 37, And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. But God gives it a body that he has cho as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. 
For not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is another. There is one glory of the sun, and another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars, for star differs from star in glory. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. You see, death is necessary. These bodies are like seeds. At death, these seeds are planted in the dust of the ground. They are laid in the dust of the dirt. And upon the resurrection, that seed will will, will bring forth life everlasting. That body will be raised immortally. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. We go to the grave weak and frail and broken and bruised and shattered. But it is raised with power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a life-giving being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. You see, death is necessary because death prepares us for glory. These bodies cannot handle the glory to come. One of the translations of the, of the word glory in the Hebrew is kabod, which means weight. There is an eternal weight of glory waiting for us. And that weight of glory, were it to rest on these frail bodies, would absolutely level us and crush us. But when we enter into glory, our bodies will have been made suitable and made fit and prepared for the glory of God to weigh upon us and to bring about eternal joy and gladness. Number nine, if we are to look death in the face and prepare as we know it's coming, we're not talking in hypothetical terms, friends. We're not talking like as if, you know, in case you die one day, you are going to die one day. And the work of Pastors is to prepare you for that day, to look to Christ, to live for Christ, and to die for Christ. We must remember, number nine, that it is not death to die. It is not death to die. One of my favorite verses in all of the Bible, John eleven twenty five. Jesus said to her, as she's weeping, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? It is not death to die. To leave this weary world. And join the saints who dwell on high, who have found their home with God. It is not death to close the eyes long dimmed by tears. And wake in joy before your throne, delivered from our fears. It is not death to die. It is not death to fling aside this earthly dust and rise with strong and noble wing to live among the just. It is not death to hear the key unlock the door that sets us free from mortal years to praise you evermore. Well, finally... As we prepare for our coming death, we are to etch upon our hearts that the gospel alone prepares us for death. The gospel alone prepares us for death. The gospel, that joyous declaration that God is renewing, redeeming the world 
through Christ, and that right now he is calling all peoples to turn from their sin and to trust his son for salvation. The gospel that tells us that each of us has sinned against God. We have rebelled against his reign. We have spurned his rule. We have traded his glory. We have despised his sovereignty. And the penalty for our sin is death and everlasting hell. The gospel that tells us that although we have done that and are that, God has sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem us from the curse of the law. He was born to live for his people's sake, the perfect, obedient life that God requires and to then die on the cross in our place, bearing our sin. That gospel that tells us that on the third day, after he breathed his last He rose bodily from the grave and now reigns in heaven. And now he offers righteousness, resurrection, forgiveness, eternal blessedness in the presence of God for all who repent of their sin and trust him alone for their salvation. The gospel is what prepares us for death. We approach our death holding fast, clinging to the message of the gospel. Well, Everything I have said so far applies to believers. Applies to those who have turned from their ways to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, hell is not for the worst people, as the world teaches us. The world says, oh, there's a special place in hell for that kind of guy. Hell is not for the worst people. Hell is for the unrepentant people. If you don't turn from your sin, your death, your death will be your worst day. For the believer, your dying day is your best day. But for the unbeliever, your dying day is your worst day. This is the closest to heaven you will ever be. To hear the cries and laughter of family, the, 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 the joyful cries of a child just dying of laughter that's the clo- that's, that's, you won't hear that in eternity you will be surrounded with people weeping and gnashing gritting their teeth in rage against themselves in rage against the enemy and in rage against God that will be a Christless eternity for all those who die without him and so I urge you if you're outside of Christ this morning Turn to him. He is the resurrection and the life. If you believe in him, though you die, you shall live. And you can sing that song, it is not death to die, to leave this weary world, to join the saints who dwell on high, who've made their home with God. These are just some truths to hold dear to our hearts as we guard our hearts in the face of death. Let's pray.